0: County efforts to boost vaccination rates.
1: So we really need to get our population immunized and shut down the circulation.
0: I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Opening up about the trauma of sexual abuse.
2: Every time something like this story with Cardinal McCarrick comes out, it pushes men to talk a little more, particularly when the public reaction is one of anger towards the perpetrator.
0: Plus, how an effective medication to treat postpartum depression is out of reach for many, and a glimpse at the life of a stuntman. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
3: KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.
0: With 70% of eligible San Diego County residents fully vaccinated, the Delta variant continues to spread. So much so, it's prompted officials to require county employees to get vaccinated or get weekly testing. California is also the first in the nation to implement measures to encourage state employees and healthcare workers to get vaccinated. So how will this impact vaccination efforts and where do they stand across the county now? Infectious disease specialist Dr. Mark Sawyer is a member of San Diego County's COVID-19 Vaccine Clinical Advisory Group and joins us to answer that question. Dr. Sawyer you're welcome.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: So has San Diego County seen a, cha- a change in its vaccination rate as the Delta variant has taken hold and infection rates have risen?
1: Well, that, you're right. The, that story is rapidly changing. Uh, the county does track how many doses are given in the county every week. And the data as of last week suggested a little bit of an increased rate of vaccination. So I'm hopeful that the publicity around the Delta virus is leading some people to change their mind and go out and get vaccinated. Those numbers will be updated, I think, even later today. So we'll have a better picture uh, later today and then continue to monitor that.
0: Do we have any idea whether the recent rise in cases is actually convincing those who have been vaccine hesitant to now get vaccinated?
1: Well, I don't have any solid data on that, but anecdotally, I've certainly heard stories from people who put it off all this time and now in the face of needing to go back to masks and threaten our ability to circulate out in the community and go to school and gather in gatherings is motivating some people to finally go out and get vaccinated.
0: You know, for people who still don't trust the vaccine, though, and are hearing news that breakthrough cases are on the rise, and that some vaccinated people can carry the same viral load as unvaccinated people, what are you telling them?
1: Yeah, there's lots of uh, information flowing that may be hard for everybody to digest. So so I want to start off by saying The vast majority of people who are still getting hospitalized with COVID are the unvaccinated people. It's not vaccinated people with breakthrough disease. They make up less than 1% of the total. So if you're avoiding vaccine because you don't think it works, you're, you're not looking at the information correctly. The vaccine definitely works at keeping you out of the hospital, keeping you from dying from COVID, And most of the people who are getting so-called breakthrough disease have very mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. But it is true that we've now learned in the last few weeks that the Delta variant can infect people who've been vaccinated and they can replicate the virus in their nose and throat and they can be contagious. And that's why we're seeing the mask mandates coming back because we need to break the transmission cycle. Even from those people who are vaccinated and still get infected.
0: What role do you see vaccine mandates playing in increasing vaccinations in San Diego?
1: I think we're seeing uh, sort of the momentum increasing behind vaccine mandates. Everybody's aware of the federal and state efforts along those lines. The University of California has issued a mandate for everybody coming to UC campuses. I think it's a very important public health intervention that we really need to do. You know, we've tried our best to convince people that the vaccine is in their best interest, but we've got still 30, 40% of the population who doesn't seem to agree with that. And they're the ones who are really aggravating this outbreak. And and if we don't get our, our head around COVID, It's going to keep developing new variants, some that are even worse than the ones we've had so far. So we really need to get our population immunized and shut down the circulation.
0: You know, we hear about vaccines also being key to stopping mutations and variants. So I kind of want to talk about schools a bit now. I mean, do you think sending children back to school could potentially give this virus more opportunity to spread, mutate, and vary among children who don't have access to the vaccine yet?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and and it's being thoroughly discussed right now at at school boards and and county health departments that, that are playing a role in making decision about school. Until Delta showed up, we were in really very good shape to reopen schools fully, and the schools are prepared. They've taken lots of measures to prevent transmission but we we do know that the Delta variant is much more contagious than previous versions. So we are likely to see some transmission in schools. That needs to be weighed against the benefit of kids going back to school, which is immense. And I don't think we've talked about it enough. Children are suffering both in terms of their education, but also their socialization and their mental health by not being in school. I think we all know that children, school aged children, are not likely to get severe disease. So I think, from my point of view, the risk benefit favors still going back to school. But again, this is why we need to get as many people immunized who have access to the vaccine so we don't have a big upswing in infections when kids go back to school.
0: What's the biggest challenge for pediatricians right now? I know you you happen to be one and you were just at a conference what What was the biggest uh talk there
1: you know the the frustration we have as physicians is is essentially convincing people that that you know we' we're, we're in we have their best interest in mind when we are strongly recommending this vaccine. Everybody that I know, every pediatrician that I know has been immunized and has had their family get immunized. You know, when people say they don't trust the vaccine, we have uh, over 200 million people have been immunized just in the United States with mRNA vaccines over this last year plus. And so we have a lot of information, a lot of data on the safety and, and that's being very transparently shared with the community, so people have heard about myocarditis and, and clotting events. But those things are, although are, are there and are definitely linked to the vaccine, they are very, very rare. And infection is not rare, as, as you read every day in the newspaper. This infection is spreading widely. And the best thing we can do to protect our families and our loved ones and stay as close to business as usual is to get vaccinated.
0: As a pediatrician, what advice are you giving parents of kids under 12 who are unable to get vaccinated today?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, they need to uh, send their kids to school, first of all and advising them that the schools are taking every measure possible to limit transmission. That's things like increasing the ventilation in the rooms, spacing out kids as much as possible, uh, having good uh, sanitation, hand-washing facilities available. The schools are ready for kids to come back and and, uh, kids are ready to go back. They may not agree, but they need to go back to school for all the reasons that we've already talked about. So I think parents should not be anxious about sending their kids back, particularly if the parents and everyone else at home is immunized, That's, that's the whole issue here. Then we don't, it's not such a big deal if we get a little transmission in schools the kids aren't going to get very sick. And if they bring it home, nobody at home is going to get sick because they're immunized.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Sawyer, an infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital and member of San Diego County's COVID-19 Vaccine Clinical Advisory Group. Dr. Sawyer, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
4: Next month, a former Catholic cardinal will face criminal charges in Massachusetts for alleged sexual molestation. Theodore McCarrick is the highest-ranking member of the U.S. Catholic clergy to be criminally charged with sex abuse. And remarkably, the charges stem from an alleged incident involving a teenage boy that happened more than 45 years ago. Many of the sex abuse cases we hear about involving boys and young men are not reported until the victims are adults, And in the past, many such reports have been disbelieved. Does it still take male sex abuse victims many years to come forward? And is their trauma being properly treated? Joining me is Alan Rule, a psychotherapist in San Diego who works with male survivors of sexual abuse. And Alan, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
4: The reports about boys being sexually molested by members of the clergy have made headlines over the years. I'm wondering, have they been an important part in bringing male sex abuse out of the shadows?
2: Absolutely. Most of the men with whom I work wait decades before they speak up. And what I'm noticing is that over the past several years, since particularly the Catholic Church abuse scandal broke several years ago, and the Boy Scouts sex abuse scandal has broken. Men are coming into treatment for the trauma they've encountered much earlier, but it's still at least typically 10, 20, sometimes 30, 40 years.
4: Do we have any statistics on how many boys and young men are molested?
2: The prevailing statistic right now that has been replicated in several different studies is one out of six boys by the time they are 16 years old have been the victim of inappropriate sexual contact by someone else. So what that means is in our county, if you extrapolate that across the male population, we have roughly 280,000 men in this county that have been victims of childhood sexual abuse.
4: Are the people who commit the abuse or where it occurs different for boys than for girls?
2: When I was growing up, my parents warned me about the creepy guy, stranger with candy, the guy in the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The guy in the trench coat that's hanging out by the playground, stranger danger. What we know now is that's typically not who perpetrates sexual abuse of boys. Of all the men I've worked with over the years, only one was assaulted or abused by someone he did not know. Typically, it's someone that the boys trust, someone that they know well, most frequently, someone that they really love and feel very close to. It's usually, statistically, it tends to be outside the nuclear family, but it's in that first ring of intimate engagement outside the nuclear family. You know, extended family members clergy, coaches, babysitters, neighbors, family, friends, again, almost always someone that the boys know and trust. So the issue that that raises is one of betrayal and difficulty trusting people because they've learned early on that the people that they are told that they can trust, sometimes they can't
4: other charges I referred against uh, McCarrick go back to incidents 45 years ago, and you were saying it takes men longer to reveal the fact that they were molested. Why does it take longer for men?
2: There are many myths that are out there in the public mind about men who have been sexually abused. And these things really conspire to keep men quiet. For example, If a boy is sexually abused by an older man, which most perpetrators of sexual abuse against boys are male, then people will tend to question his sexual orientation, the child's sexual orientation. They will tend to question the child's masculinity. As boys, we are trained to, we're supposed to be able to always protect ourselves. We're not supposed to be victims. And so there's a question, there are questions around masculinity, there are questions around sexual orientation. There's also a a very pervasive myth that men who have been sexually abused grow up to go to become sexual abusers themselves. Again, these are not borne out by the statistics, but they're still out there. And these boys have grown up hearing this. And so that conspires, those things conspire among others to keep them quiet. They're afraid of saying anything. I have had clients tell me that they will not tell their adult children that they have been victims of sexual abuse because they're concerned that the adult children would not allow them to be alone with the grandchildren after that. And that's heartbreaking because again, these things are myths. They are not statistically supported. Um, Men who have been sexually abused are not, that much more likely than men who have not to be engaged in any kind of inappropriate sexual relationship or contact or abuse with anybody else.
4: And is it getting any easier for men to reveal their childhood sexual abuse?
2: I believe it is. Just in my experience, again, I'm seeing clients come in younger and younger. I am seeing more people more men talking about it. So every time something like this story with Cardinal McCarrick comes out, it pushes men to talk a little more. Um, when particularly when the public reaction is one of anger and and disgust towards the perpetrator and empathy for the victims. That makes it a little safer for these men to come forward. So yes, short answer, absolutely. The Catholic Church scandal, the Boy Scout scandal, the, um, again, this latest revelation about Cardinal McCarrick, all, every time it's in the media, it does become a little bit easier, in my opinion, for men to speak up.
4: I've been speaking with San Diego psychotherapist, Alan Rule. Alan, thank you.
2: Thank you for having me.
3: KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community, and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.
0: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. One out of eight new moms in California experiences postpartum depression. Two years ago, the FDA approved the first and only medication designed to treat postpartum depression. It's called Branexalone, and most women who get it start feeling better within days. But the drug is outrageously expensive, $34,000. And according to a new KQED investigation, California's largest insurer makes it extremely difficult to get. KQED's health correspondent, April Domboski, explains. Miriam McDonald was 44 when she told her doctor
5: she wanted to have another baby. The doctor said she had a better chance of winning the lottery. So when she got pregnant, she and her husband were thrilled. But right after having her
6: son, everything turned. Three days into giving birth to him, I was thinking, oh my God, what did I do? I just brought this baby into this world, and I, I I, can barely take care of myself right now. I feel exhausted. I haven't slept in three days. I haven't really eaten in three days. As the weeks went by, her depression got worse. She felt sad, but also indifferent. I didn't want to hold my baby. I didn't want to change him. I didn't have a connection with my child at all. Miriam worried her mood might hurt her son. She worried she might not make it at all. Every day I was crying. Every day I felt like I just wanted to die. Every day I, I thought about ending my life. Miriam went
5: to Kaiser Permanente near Sacramento for help. And she says the doctors there put her on a merry-go-round of medication trial and error. First, one drug. It
6: was making me more anxious than anything. Then her doctor upped the dose of another drug. I was having these horrific nightmares. So he tried another drug. That night I started hallucinating. I actually heard a jazz band playing outside of my window. A full jazz band. Her doctor told her to stop
5: taking it, but he said it could take seven weeks before the hallucination stopped. Then he retired. And when Miriam complained to her new doctor that she was still depressed, four months
6: after giving birth, she suggested some more medications. I was desperate. I was like, I'm trying to help myself, but things are just getting worse. So what am I left with? What do I do?
5: Miriam did her own research, and she found out about a new drug called Brexanolone. It's the first and only drug designed specifically to treat postpartum depression. Instead of targeting the serotonin system in the brain, like most antidepressants, Brexanolone works by replenishing a hormone that becomes depleted after having a baby. It's infused into the bloodstream
6: over 60 hours. You can go to a hospital with three days, they give you this drug, it's an infusion. This, this could really get me out of this postpartum depression. In clinical trials,
5: 75% of women who got brexanolone started to feel better immediately after the three-day infusion treatment. UNC Chapel Hill Dr. Raya Patterson says for most of the women they've been treating over the last two years, the result is night and day people walk out of the hospital wanting to be with their child, wanting to return home. You can really see that transformation in the hospital room over those 60 hours. But when Miriam asked her doctor at Kaiser for Brexanolone, she said no. In an email, her doctor said the existing studies were limited and unimpressive, and she told Miriam that she didn't meet Kaiser's criteria for the drug. She said Miriam would have had to try and fail four medications and electroconvulsive therapy before she could try brexanolone, And all this had to happen within six months of having her baby. For Miriam, it was too late. But she thought, how could anyone qualify?
6: This is crazy. You know, by the time you even try one drug that's like four weeks out, another drug is four weeks out, another drug is four weeks out. There's just no way. Kaiser's guidance is an outlier. KQED analyzed the
5: guidelines from a dozen health plans. Three of them require women to fail one medication before trying brexanolone. One plan requires two fails. But Kaiser is the only system we found that recommends women first fail four drugs and electroconvulsive therapy. Clinicians who treat postpartum depression say this is ridiculous.
7: That is abusive. That's absurd. That strikes me as insane. It may
5: also be illegal. Under a new state law, health plans must conform to scientific evidence and expert consensus when denying mental health treatments. State Senator Scott Weiner is the author.
1: If Kaiser's making it effectively impossible to get a particular important mental health treatment, that could definitely be a violation of our parity law.
5: Kaiser says it always follows the law. It also says its integrated structure makes it different from traditional insurers. At Kaiser, a patient's doctor determines whether a medication is necessary, not the health plan. But when I asked Kaiser why its doctors use criteria that make it so hard for women to get brexanolone, they said the criteria are just recommendations, not requirements. Doctors don't have to follow them. The head of psychiatry for Kaiser in Northern California is Dr. Maria Koshi. At
4: the end of the day, this
2: is, you know, an individual clinical decision by both the provider, the physician, and the patient. But why issue
5: clinical guidance if you don't expect doctors to follow it? Senator Weiner says Kaiser providers get questioned or can even face consequences if they don't.
1: Whether it's couched as a recommendation or a requirement is almost irrelevant. It it has the same effect.
5: When Miriam McDonald's doctor refused to prescribe herbrexanolone, She said she was following Kaiser's criteria, that Miriam had not tried four other drugs. When another Kaiser patient, Yesenia Munoz, requested the drug, she was also told she didn't qualify because she hadn't failed enough medications. Yesenia was devastated by the denial. Four months after giving birth to her daughter, she still felt suicidal.
7: I could get out the door sometimes and take the stroller and go walk. And my mind kept on saying, if you just step in front of the car... (sighs) It's
3: all going to go away.
5: Yesenia went to state regulators for help, and the state sided with her, ordering Kaiser to pay for Brexanolone. She started feeling better on the first day of treatment.
7: The nurse came in and she said something funny and and I laughed. It was the first time I had laughed in so long. She started looking
5: through photos and videos of her daughter on her phone. She says it was like she was experiencing those moments for the first time.
0: It was like a switch flipped. It made me happy enough to want to live. It saved my life.
5: Kaiser declined to comment on any patient cases for privacy reasons. But Dr. Koshi acknowledged that their brexanolone recommendations were developed two years ago based on the safety and efficacy data available at the time. She says Kaiser is reviewing them now.
8: Sometimes the practice recommendations are revised and made, you know, far broader.
5: In the meantime, women are waiting. It was six months before Yesenia Munoz got brexanolone and was able to start bonding with her baby. Miriam McDonald suffered for a year and a half. She never got brexanolone. She eventually got Kaiser to cover a different depression treatment that finally worked for her— But she says she lost so much time with her son. When he took his first steps, she felt like she was barely
6: there. I felt like I've been robbed, really, of all those moments. Of those little milestones, you know, that I'm never going to get back.
0: That was KQED health correspondent April Domboski reporting.
4: Childcare centers were hit hard here in San Diego and across the country during the pandemic, and their troubles aren't going away. KPBS reporter Claire Tregasser talked to providers who are still taking precautions while trying to stay afloat financially.
8: It's been a rough past year and a half for Randy Lum and his four-year-old son, Miles. Miles, are you okay? I like it. You like it? Okay. <laughs> so they were excited for Miles' first day at a new preschool last week. But their excitement didn't last long.
9: We caught a summer cold. And with any cold um, for you to go back to school, you need a negative COVID test.
8: After just one day at school, Miles was home again. He went back on a Friday. But on Saturday, they got more bad news.
9: Uh, I got a call from the YMCA. Um, Long story short, one of the kids over the weekend tested positive and the kid was at school on Friday. So that's where, uh, this was in Miles's class. So Miles was exposed. So his class is automatically shut down for two weeks.
8: Lum and his wife, Abigail, are back to a reality they thought they'd moved past, trying to work from home while taking care of Miles and his younger sister, Amelia. Though Amelia wasn't exposed, they're also keeping her home for two weeks.
9: Abby's upstairs. Uh working normally and I'm just stuck downstairs with, with the devils.
8: <laughs> At most child care centers, it still looks like twenty twenty. Kids twelve and under are unvaccinated, so everyone ages two and up are wearing masks. And providers are still taking other precautions, which is hard on their business. So says Laura Cohn, an early education and child care advisor.
7: Some of them are choosing to serve fewer kids or serve them in stable groups that um, make it harder to staff. And all of those things are just reducing the total amount of revenue that they can pull in for their business. And um, already these are businesses operating on thin to non-existent margins.
8: Sally Chenoweth, the owner of Discovery Preschool in Oceanside, says she's now at 70% capacity. But she can't count on consistency especially now that the Delta variant is causing cases to surge again. I could have called off my wait list and filled up all of my classes like right away. Could have done
10: it, but um, I'm just so worried that things are going to go back in the other direction. And then I'm going to have to ask all these people that started. Now you have to leave and go do something
8: else. Chenoweth says she, like many providers, are struggling to hire new staff. She's also had to pass on costs to parents. This year, she raised rates by 8%.
7: Sorry, I need these for my magic ocean castle. Holly
8: Weber, the owner of Magic Hours Children's Center in Mira Mesa, says she's at 60% capacity now. And she's stuck at that level because she can't hire more qualified staff to increase class sizes.
2: The only thing that's stopping us is having a qualified staff member to continue to build.
8: The COVID vaccine for kids 2 and up should be a glimmer of hope on the horizon. It could possibly come by late fall or early winter but it doesn't make Weber feel much better. Once it
0: becomes available, how many parents are willing and comfortable to
2: give their child the
0: vaccine?
8: One positive is that masks have really cut down on the typical illnesses that usually course through daycare centers. Weber says she plans to use them well into the future during cold and flu season, but she's worried about the developmental impacts. We have
7: two-year-olds that you know, we that have never seen the faces of their caregivers.
8: For parents like Lum, he knows the year ahead will likely involve staying at home from work when a kid is sick, even with just a runny nose, and that puts new weight on his day-to-day decisions.
9: Having kids at home who are not vaccinated, who won't be vaccinated for probably another year, I'm going to wear a mask. I'm going to wear a mask like nothing's changed because nothing has.
8: Claire Trageser. KPBS News.
9: And joining me is Early Education
4: and Child Care Advisor, Laura Cohn. Laura, welcome. Thank you. Last week, the CDC and pediatricians groups advised masking for all students two and up and all staff in school settings, regardless of the staff's vaccination status. Is that what's been standard though in most preschool settings anyway?
7: Uh, Not quite until now. The masking has been advised and recommended for childcare settings, but not required and not enforced. So we're moving into um, a new phase in terms of masks in childcare where um, it's going to be mandatory. So,
4: one of the teachers in this report said some young children have never seen the faces of their caregivers without a mask on. What do you think is the impact of that?
7: You know, honestly, we. We worried a great deal about that at the beginning of the pandemic when mask wearing was new to all of us. Uh, What we've learned is that first of all, children, even small children are more willing and compliant about wearing their mask than we expected to be. And secondly, although some children maybe are affected by not seeing um, the faces and the smiles, it's not as um, severe of an impact or it's not an impact on many children um, at all that we worried it would be, so I, I share I share some concern about that. But um, overall, I'm very concerned about the COVID um, pandemic as well. And so um, I'm I'm glad we're taking the precautions. We need to keep teachers and children safe.
4: Now, in this year's budget. The state doubled the number of subsidized childcare slots and increased rates paid to teachers. Is that a significant help to daycare providers here in San Diego?
7: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We're thrilled about that. There are families who who don't make enough to afford the market rate of childcare and have not been able to access publicly funded childcare um, until now. And so these extra slots are going to make a huge difference for families. And then the additional payments to providers from the state for those subsidized slots are long overdue, I have to say, but extremely welcome.
4: Now, we heard in this report that parents may not yet be comfortable sending their kids to preschool or daycare. Is there any way childcare providers can increase that comfort level?
7: I think um, being very transparent with families about the precautions that you're taking helps a lot. A second thing is to let families know that we've been watching um, child care operate during the pandemic. Although many providers are closed, many, many of them um, have been continuously operating and we have not seen many instances at all of transmission of COVID-19 in child care. So we need to be careful and cautious and aware that COVID is not gone, but we also can be assured that um that our experience so far has showed that childcare is not a major source of transmission of the disease
4: now there are companies across the nation well like Qualcomm here in San Diego that say they want all employees back in the office in some capacity by September but with the childcare situation so precarious do you think that will be possible
7: i think it's going to be tough for families i guess the thing I would emphasize is that the childcare situation was precarious and tough even before the pandemic. So working parents in San Diego County have been struggling, struggling, struggling to find care arrangements that they can afford, that they feel confident are going to nurture their children, um, and that are convenient for where they have to go to work. It was already tough. So the impacts that the pandemic has caused on the sector are absolutely going to make it even even tougher for parents to go back to work full time. So for that reason, it's really important for us here in our region to step up to doing everything we can to support the childcare sector and childcare providers, not just to kind of limp through the pandemic, but really reset our system and set it up for growth and for quality over the long term. And I've been just so thrilled to see um, many of our local politicians and leaders recognizing the importance of child care as a, an essential part of our economic health and growth and um, leaning in to figure out ways that our county government, our city governments and our school district governments, I really want to emphasize that can help meet working parents needs, keep kids safe and learning um, and help our economy get back on track.
4: Now, educators have known for years that good early education can really boost a child's chances for success in school. Do you have concerns that we now have a group of very young children who've lost that boost?
7: Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm really worried. I'm worried about families who chose not to send their children to kindergarten, uh, virtual kindergarten last year, which I have to say, as a parent, I might have made that same choice. But that's a that's a lost year of education for those kids. And same thing for the preschoolers um, who missed out on in-person learning, learning to play with one another, learning to follow directions, learning their numbers and colors (laughs) and letters as well. So. I absolutely anticipate that it's going to be a rough few years as those kids catch up and our schools are going to have to really dig into their best knowledge about early childhood development, early literacy and early numeracy to help help all of our kids get back on track.:
4: I've been speaking with early education and child care advisor Laura Cohn. Laura, thank you very much. You're welcome. thanks for having me
1: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
0: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Imagine a job where you might be asked to jump off a building or get set on fire. Well, if you're a Hollywood stuntman, those are not unusual requests. KPBS Cinema Junkie host Beth Accomando dedicates her latest podcast to stunt performers. In this excerpt from Crew Call, Stunt Performers Edition, she speaks with Brad Martin, who decided on a career as a stuntman after watching TV's The Fall Guy. <laughs>
1: This is the story of one of America's great unsung heroes. I mean, you've seen him, but you never knew who he was. You've cheered for him and cried for him. Women have wanted to die for him. But did he ever get any credit? Or the girl? No. He was what we call a stuntman. And the reason I'm talking so fondly about him is, well, because it's me.
10: Brad Martin grew up in the '80s watching The Fall Guy and was inspired by what the job could entail.
1: I might fall from a tall building. I might roll a brand
11: new car. 'Cause I'm the unknown stuntman that made Redford such a star. I just remembered that that was a career that I had heard of when I was growing up, and I was like, "Well, wait a second, that's something that sounds perfect for me."
10: And it was. Brad is now a stuntman, stunt coordinator, and second unit director with credits on The Matrix Reloaded, Live Free and Die Hard, Tropic Thunder, Batman v. Superman, and TV's The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I was curious about how someone can actually become a stunt performer. I mean, is there a school you can attend to learn how to get set on fire? Or do you have to find a mentor and do a kind of apprenticeship? Brad offered his journey as a good template for how to become a stuntman.
11: up until like the eighties, it was a very, very tight knit business. And it was really hard to get in as an outsider. So I moved down to LA in 93. And I just started asking people questions, started finding out, you know, who is a stuntman, how to become a stuntman, where do people train? I started by finding gyms where stuntmen worked out. I met a couple stunt people, found out about the art of hustling, which is not what you do in Vegas, it's more like, it's a, it used to be going out to movie sets and meeting stunt coordinators and giving them your resume and introducing yourself. And after, you know, a couple of years and maybe a reel, a video reel of showing your skills, somebody might give you or an opportunity for an audition. You might get a shot at working on a, on a movie. My first shots came through auditions and finally there was a man named, Conrad Palmisano, who hired me originally through an audition to be Robin, the Robin double in Batman Forever.
9: Riddler and Two-Face can make a pretty lethal combination. Figured you could use a
11: hand. Two against two are better odds. And so I kept in touch with him over the the next year and a half or so. And then he hired me to be the stunt double for the lead in the movie, The Peacemaker, which happened to be George Clooney. Air Force, Five Three Seven Six Two. Those weapons could be going to Chesna or Georgia. We repeat, put your weapons on hold. It was the snowball effect. I followed George through his career and then just started um, getting my name around there that way.
10: So for a stunt coordinator, I know that there's no such thing as a typical day on a movie set, but what might a day for you involve or, or what kind of things do you have to do on a regular basis on a film shoot?
11: Well, yeah, actually, yeah, the funny thing is there is no regular day on a on a movie set. Every single day is different. And as far as generalities, you know, there's often lots of fights and falls and crashes and things like that. So all in all, in a general idea you have to, or me as a stunt coordinator, needs to hire the personnel, needs to design the action, needs to correspond with the directors and make sure I'm putting their vision on film and, and creating what they want to see and choreographing the top quality action. Um, Just basically anything you see that has to do with action in a movie, I would be involved with, or a stunt coordinator would be involved with.
10: And what kind of stunts do you most look forward to and which ones kind of give you, I don't know, the most anxiety or present the most challenges?
11: As a stunt man, the things that would give me the most anxiety were the, the bigger stunts, the big car wrecks, precision-based high falls, and things that I haven't done that often. Um, like say, for instance, like hoodless fire burns and things like that, 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 you know, they want you to stay on fire for a long time. And, you know, I'm not super well-versed in it. I've done a lot on my shows, but I haven't been in that many burns. So they're just things that you're unfamiliar with or just not super comfortable with. As far as anxiety for stunt coordinating, when you get with a director that doesn't really know what they want and you're trying to choreograph something for them and you're trying to please them and they're not giving you all the information that you need and you, it's time for you to come up with the goods. Um, and so um, when I'm unsure about that, you know, it gives me anxiety. I just wanna make sure that I'm proving myself and make sure that I'm coming up with the goods for everybody.
10: And which stuff do you actually enjoy and really look forward to doing?
11: Well, I mean, just because something gives me anxiety doesn't mean that I don't enjoy it, but like something that that I'm super comfortable with, like say for instance, fights and and physical chase sequences, like something that I'm really comfortable with. I love designing that stuff. I love conceiving of it from the beginning of a script and, and breaking it down from the script to a set, figuring out the shots and figuring out what exactly the choreography is with everything. That's just something that I excel most in and that's what I enjoy doing the most.
10: I'm a huge fan of Hong Kong action films, and I know that... In Hong Kong, especially during their heyday, like back in the 80s, you know, stunt choreographers and stunt people, I mean, they they were very much integrated into the process of making the film and, you know, played a very pivotal role in how all that played out. Today, what is it like for you creating action choreography? Are you involved from very early on? Do you come in, you know, later in the process? Are you there like when they're working on the script? How does that work for you now?
11: Okay, so talking about Hong Kong action, take, like, Jackie Chan, for instance, or Wu-Ping, or those kind of, those guys. They don't necessarily have a long time ahead of time to conceive of action ideas and then choreograph them. Jackie, for instance, will walk onto a set and have a look at it and take a month shooting a two-minute fight scene, and he'll sit there for a day sometimes. You know I haven't worked with them but I've you know I've heard the stories sit there you know smoke a cigarette take a nap wait to get inspired and everybody just sits around and waits for him to find these moments of genius From the the American filmmaking standpoint we don't have that luxury so we try to choreograph things ahead of time on this movie in particular uh, Dungeons and Dragons, we didn't get a lot of prep. I only had a few weeks of prep. So I'm kind of in that realm of what Jackie and, and Wu ping would do. Is that I'm just trying to figure it out on, you know, not necessarily on the day, but with little notice here. I think necessity spawns creativity, is, is kind of my phrase that I like to go to all the time. And it just, I work well under pressure and I work well. Um, my creative juices flow under those moments right there.
0: That was Beth Accomando speaking with stuntman Brad Martin. You can listen to the full Cinema Junkie crew call Stunt Performers Edition at kpbs.org slash Cinema Junkie.